From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Today, a conversation with Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer Christine Dozier from the District of New Jersey. She retired last month after serving as chief for 15 years and as an officer in the district for the previous 15. Under Chief Dozier's leadership, her agency evolved into one on the cutting edge of pretrial work and criminal justice work more generally. She introduced a new perspective with her philosophy that reentry begins at arrest. Nationally, Chief Dozier's leadership has been recognized by the National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies, where she has served for several years as the federal representative on the organization's board. She was instrumental in helping the state of New Jersey reform its bail system and create the state's pretrial services system. She also served two terms on the Administrative Office of the U.S. Court's Chiefs Advisory Group. More recently, Chief Dozier has worked closely with the FJC on its science-informed decision-making initiative in collaboration with Massachusetts General Hospital's Center on Law, Brain, and Behavior and Harvard Law School. She's currently a Ph.D. candidate in public administration at Rutgers University, which means that pretty soon we'll be calling her Dr. Dozier. We've got Chris Dozier for the hour, folks, so don't go anywhere because it's going to be packed with about 30 years of shared wisdom that you're not going to want to miss. Chris Dozier, welcome back to Off Paper. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the last time you were here on the program a couple of years ago, you and Sharice Fano-Burdeen of the Pretrial Justice Institute spoke at some length about developments in pretrial justice. But this time, because I've got you here all by yourself, uh, I wanted to begin by kind of digging deeply into this rather unique philosophy um, that you have brought into the system, that reentry begins at arrest. You don't hear that a lot from pretrial folks because you guys are focused primarily, obviously, at the front end. You hear uh, talk about reentry mostly from folks who are working on the on the back end in probation. Um, so can you tell us what you mean by reentry begins at arrest and how that concept has influenced your approach to pretrial services work? Certainly. And thank you for giving credit for that to me. I'm not so sure I'm the one who originated that, but certainly uh, when I thought about this concept, um, it, drew, it drew my attention and um, a lot of us out there in the field started thinking about this. Um, I really credit a lot of it to the uh, Department of Justice's um, Smart on Crime Initiative and Reentry Initiative because um, it was a collaborative effort like none other I had seen with the uh, federal probation and pretrial system. And the DOJ put points of contact for reentry in every federal district. And we saw all this effort to help offenders being released from incarceration after five, ten years of custody. Um, they would come out with no GED or um, sometimes no substance abuse services when they had issues. And a lot of resources were put into helping them succeed, which was fantastic. But those of us in the pretrial field watched this and thought hey, I supervised that guy for a couple of years, in fact, and if these services are good for him coming out, why weren't they good for him earlier in the process? So uh, we really started thinking about what's our role in this. So 
while pretrial's mission is not to rehabilitate, um, in the federal system, when we have 90% conviction rate and about 90% of those folks going to prison, uh, many who are at low risk for recidivism, by the way, we start asking ourselves, is there a better way to do it? And what's pretrial's role in doing that? So I think this is part of the reason why there's been this proliferation of uh, specialty courts popping up on the front end, because we're thinking, how can we contribute to doing this better as a system? And actually, it is not inconsistent with the pretrial mission at all. When you look at the statute, when you look at the guide, when you look at a lot of our uh, opinions and uh, references, there, there are many references to not only risk, but to needs and fulfilling the needs and helping defendants with those needs. And as long as the risk principle is being upheld so that we're focusing it on the right people, the moderates, the high-risk people, um, it is consistent with our mission. And in addition to that, pretrial has always owned diversion as one of its goals and missions. And the Smart on Crime Initiative also encouraged non-traditional uh, diversion cases. So when we start diverting moderate and even some higher risk cases that are doing well, uh, clearly there's a need to address um, behavior and have some behavior modification model and rehabilitative model involved. So pretrial's role um, has been evolving. One of the important things that I think we need to discuss when we talk about this issue is um, there is a great concern in the pretrial world about mission creep and should pretrial be focused on behavior modification and rehabilitation. And I do understand that concern because working with the NAPSA board, uh, we see that in some 3,000 plus counties across the country, there are only about 400 pretrial programs. So clearly we need to be focused on building good um, pretrial fundamental bail programs around the country. Um, but, uh, but this evolution of some of these programming that uh, what you talk about with the FJC and the focus on, on behavior and um, uh, clearly that's, there's a room for that in our system and it needs to be explored more. The National Institute of Corrections calls some of this harm reduction initiative and that's never a bad thing. So, um, I, you know, one of the things that um, occurs to me as I think about reentry beginning at arrest is, uh, and, and the pretrial role is really sort of taking a more systems view, um, that we have an individual uh, in most cases, an individual who's coming through the system, they're arrested, they end up before the court, they're perhaps either detained or released, hopefully if uh, released, if, if the case allows for it, um, then you all in pretrial services will supervise them. And then I think something like 97% of the cases end up, you know, in a conviction or a plea. Um, and so, and most of those uh, individuals are going to be doing some time in the Bureau of Prisons, and then they're going to come out on the back end and be supervised by U.S. probation, which 
It was also within the federal courts, within the district courts. So it, it, to me, it speaks very clearly of taking a systems view and sort of seeing how this individual is going to be touched by our system in various ways and by various parts over the course of this very critical part of their life. Um, and it seems like if you can sort of take a harm reduction or an early intervention approach, it just seems to make more sense, not just in terms of public safety, which is paramount, obviously, but also just in terms of like efficiency and, and, and cost. Uh, so can you speak to, to those issues? Sure. Well, clearly the what little research exists in federal pretrial, um, and it's consistent with what we see in, in uh, the state research with the state systems. Um, clearly, when uh, defendants have an opportunity to be released pretrial, the research shows that they do much better. They succeed at a much higher rate, not only during the term of pretrial, but post-conviction supervision, and they also have much better outcomes in the sentencing phase. Uh, they have the opportunity to not only uh, assist in their defense in a better way, but to uh, put their best foot forward, to work, to earn money, to support their families, to get interventions, substance abuse, mental health, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, things like this that uh, really allow them to turn their lives around. And when judges see people that have come a long way since the time of their arrest, uh, they, clearly there's an impact at sentencing for the better. So I think that this is something worth um, worth elaborating on, this idea, and, and that there is some research out there that substantiates the claim that if a person does well on pretrial supervision, it can really positively affect uh, their sentence, um, and then their uh, how well perhaps they even do in the BOP, and then obviously coming out onto post-conviction supervision. So it's one thing to sort of claim that anecdotally. It's another thing to say that there's some re research out there to support it. Um, and so again, I think it it it. it from a community safety perspective, to some degree, it might be counterintuitive, um, but it actually can work. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, to what degree have you, because you've sort of, um, you've pushed this idea of arrest, uh, of uh, uh, reentry beginning at arrest, have you gotten any pushback either from other people in pretrial, uh, state or federal, or perhaps from federal defenders, um, who, again, I think have a good reason to be concerned about things like mission creep, you know, and risk assessment, uh, and all of the things that are being written about now that are that are of concern. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it, it's good that there's pushback, because we do need to carefully think through um, how we're doing things. And when we start seeing a trend happening in the system. We want to make sure it's it's for the right reasons and it's going to have the good outcomes that we want. So certainly there has been pushback from uh, many in the pretrial field who are concerned that um, we'll call them purists. You know that the the they and many of them who worked hard in those early years to educate stakeholders what pretrial was about and what it was for. And it was to uh, reduce the uh, incarceration of 
the pre-trial um, incarceration I'm talking about of presumed innocent people to reduce crime on bail and to reduce failure to appear. Um, but when we, and, and in the state system, many of these uh, programs, those cases are being turned around in a very short period of time. They have a lot of lower level cases, misdemeanors, things like that. So they're turning them around in a couple of months. Obviously, you're not going to even touch upon the beginning of behavior modification in, in just a couple of months. So I understand it's not the place for it in many jurisdictions. Uh, but um, when you think about in the federal system, again, that 90% of them are going into custody regardless. Um, and when the specialty courts started proliferating um, all throughout our, our system, and these people started having really good outcomes, and we started thinking, but what about the other 1,500 people under our supervision um, that don't have the benefit of this type of program? So um, it, it really necessitates thinking about this uh, as, a, as a broad system. So um, I understand it's, you know, we have to be selective about how it's applied. Um, m many in the defense world, of course, had concerns about where is this leading? You want to put my presumed innocent person into cognitive behavioral therapy. I can tell you that the, uh, the head of the public defender's office in the District of New Jersey saw that by doing so, the defendants were doing much better. They were having fewer violations. Uh, there was less noncompliance. They were um, improving their lives, and they were having better outcomes. So they essentially said, um, we are comfortable with you um, having this kind of programming because we understand what you're trying to do with it. So it's a lot of, of need to educate about what we're trying to do and what won't be done, such as more violations as a result. So is it fair to say that um, one can be presumed innocent but still have needs um, that, that, that are perhaps separate and apart from, you know, the, the, the legal disposition of the case, in other words, um, that people have all kinds of needs, Pre-trial services is equipped many times to help the person meet, get those needs met, uh, whether it's uh, with cognitive behavioral groups or uh, treatment or uh, employment assistance or educational assistance. There's a budget for that. Um, so it, it sounds like you're saying there is, there is a difference between the, sort of the, the strictly legal aspect of the case, the presumption of innocence, which is paramount and important, obviously, but also that people can come to us with certain needs and we are in a position to help get those needs met if the person wants that. Certainly. And more importantly, if those um, services are addressing risk, which I find they are compatible, they're consistent, those types of services that we're providing to someone who's um, unemployed. Um, we know that when un people without work are more likely to have noncompliance issues than people who have jobs and are making money and are stable. That's all part of pretrial's mission is to help stabilize and get them to the disposition. And these services are helping uh, by, you know, I think the, the addiction issue and the 
um, understanding our system, our, our, our society has uh, developed about addiction and the causes and the reasons um, and has therefore brought a lot of support to treatment instead of, uh, you know, incarceration for these individuals. But we've learned from some of the recent um, research and evidence and uh, programming that um, it's not uh, just addiction. It's things like adverse childhood experiences and trauma and the way uh, many, many of our defendants have um, been raised that they have difficulty with compliance with the many, many obligations we put on um, our defendants. And therefore, um, they need more support and we need to work with them in a different way to help them be successful and to reduce the noncompliance. And by providing um, cognitive behavioral therapy to um, a defendant who's really struggling with um, how to be um, how to have a job that, you know, he's never had before and um, has had issues with authority. Um, we really have to help them think differently about their future and about how to remain um, successful. And um, so that by providing these services, these interventions, we're not only addressing the risks and making it um, more safe for the community, but we're helping those individuals as well. And this can also be something that really makes the difference between somebody being detained and released, because obviously these are things that the court can mandate as conditions uh, for release, and then you all supervise the individual in the community uh, to ensure compliance with those conditions. Exactly. And as we're seeing... um, just as we know that when we release someone into treatment program, they're more likely to be successful than without that treatment. Um, releasing somebody with the, the, the supervision coupled with the support system that so many of them don't have, um, using Second Chance Act fundings to remove some of the obstacles for them to get services, uh, to get a vocation, to... Um, help support their families um, and engaging them in um, a, a more of a, a supportive relationship. Um, that's very important. This is, you know, some folks might say this is hug a thug type uh, liberal approach that doesn't appeal to them. But the fact is, the evidence has shown that by Um, Having a a collaborative relationship with the defendant by helping them through MI, uh, this cognitive model, the STAR model that's been rolled out in the federal system, um, that we're better able to help them understand themselves, come to their own conclusions about what's in their best interest and what's going to help them get to the goals they set for themselves. So um, it's not a... um, a liberal approach. It's an evidence-based approach that has better outcomes. Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer Chris Dozier is my guest. After a short break, we'll talk with Chris about some challenges she faced upon becoming chief and how she overcame them. You're listening to Off Paper. Hi, I'm Lori Murphy, a colleague of Mark Sherman and head of the Executive Education Group at the FJC. We have a podcast that focuses on leadership in the federal courts called 
In Session, Leading the Judiciary, that I think you'll like. Each episode features current research and cutting-edge insights into leadership. Guests include Michael Lewis, groundbreaking author of The Undoing Project and Moneyball, Professor Jennifer Eberhardt, implicit bias researcher at Stanford University, and Harvard Business School's expert on psychological safety, Amy Edmondson. Each episode strives to enhance listeners' critical thinking skills, encourage expression of authentic leadership, and promote the use of best practices among judiciary executives. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts or on fjc.dcn. Join us. The podcast is In Session, Leading the Judiciary. Chris, I want to ask you to reflect on your first few years as chief. Before you became chief, you were already working as an officer in the District of New Jersey, and your agency had had a couple of very good values-driven leaders before you took over. Um, Can you talk about how your predecessors influenced you uh, and what you learned from them, especially in terms of both service and leadership? Certainly. So my first chief, John Martirano, was a uh, DETS, a drug and alcohol treatment specialist in, in the probation, the federal probation office, before becoming the first chief when our district split in 1987. And so having been a treatment officer, he had a perspective that he brought to pretrial, which was teaching us compassionate service. So right from the beginning, I came in understanding a role that, of course, accountability was part of it, but compassionate service to those um, that we supervise. And Tom Henry was brought in when the agency was developed as the uh, supervisor at the time, but became second chief. Tom was a PhD and a former teacher. So he really taught all of us how to prepare ourselves right from the beginning to be future leaders to um, develop ourselves as um, professionals, a professional expertise in pretrial services, which meant um, pursuing advanced education. Many of us uh, got our master's degrees working full-time, pursuing uh, training. Um, Most of us in the management team had gone through foundations management and leadership development program with the FJC. Engaging in national level uh, working groups and advisory committees, um, doing district reviews, so we're learning from from other districts what wonderful uh, practices are out there. And not so wonderful. And not so wonderful, yes, yes. So a broad um, national perspective um, that really helped um, develop our staff um, and um, learn from others, and um, just have a, have a, a broader view. Um, but he really taught us to, to take ownership of our own development and, and, and hone our craft. And um, so I tried to emulate both of them um, throughout my career. So um, uh, the notion of thinking about leadership uh, even from the line um, and developing yourself from the beginning uh, – is something that really resonates with us uh, over the last few years. As you know, uh, the FJC has developed a set of 10 competencies uh, for uh, probation and pretrial officers. And one of those 10 competencies happens to be everyday leadership. 
Um, and so this philosophy that Tom brought in uh, as chief and that you learned um, from uh, is really, and this was a number of years ago, he was really kind of ahead of his time, which is kind of what you're describing, um, this notion of everyday leadership. And simply because you don't have the title, right, supervisor, deputy chief, chief, the way it works in our system, right? That doesn't mean, it doesn't, the title has nothing to do with leadership or the characteristics of leadership. And those really begin, you know, at the beginning. Um, and, and it sounds like you really sort of took that to heart and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Yes, a- absolutely. I think we've always told um, our staff that everybody um, is a leader in their own right. And, um, helps um, develop and, and build our credibility one case at a time, one project at a time. You don't have to just be an officer to be in a leadership capacity. And so um, just taking, um, t- taking pride in what you do, wanting to be the best, whether um, promotional opportunities and management track is your goal or not. And there are many who aren't interested in doing that for love and passion of the line work, and, and I applaud that, and we need that. Um, but they are clearly still leaders, and by showing others um, how to do it well and thinking, um, you know, with an open mind about um, the evolution of the practice. In the 30 years that you've been with the District of New Jersey, have you sort of seen that manifest in terms of the culture of the district? Oh, certainly, yeah. I think we've we've encouraged um, many different creative approaches to the way we do our work. We've always um, encouraged a lot of input. Um, we've developed committees to get input from all different offices, satellite main office, from all different uh, staff members in different roles. Um, we put together a local uh, pretrial advisory committee to bring concerns, bring issues, bring suggestions. Um, in fact, they, when I was a new chief, they brought um, a suggestion that they wanted to change the model that we had in the, in the district of a, a generalized approach to um, being an officer doing both investigations and supervision. And they wanted to bifurcate and have a specialization. And while I had concerns about how that might work, will it have um, well-developed officers who have you know, broad knowledge? Will, um, will there be enough officers who want to do just one or the other? We left it to them to work through. And uh, they did, and they came to us with a policy that we implemented, and it's worked to this day. So it sounds to me like uh, one of the ways, sort of a a general way in which it's manifested in the district is that officers aren't shy about coming up, coming to the leadership with with ideas um, and sort of laying them out. And whether you agree with the ideas or not, it's like there's a sort of um, uh, they are they don't wait for the boss, you know, to speak from on high about what we're going to do. Obviously, there's going to be some of that, too. But they feel empowered 
um, because of this notion of leading from where you are, basically, which is what you've articulated, they, they feel empowered to come to the chief or to the deputy or to the executive team with ideas. Um, and they're prepared to kind of hash them out. And if they, the idea is rejected, it's rejected. No, no skin off my back. We're going to move on. We're professionals. Is that a fair uh, characterization? Most certainly. Um, we brought in the FJC to do a program um, one year that was um, how we influence in all directions. You know, we're used to trying to influence judges to hear about certain cases, influencing um, attorneys and um, our peers, influencing by uh, mentoring um, students, younger officers, but, um, you know, really driving home the point that um, you all have significant influence. You're in a, a position of importance and you should use that influence uh, for the better. We have always encouraged a lot of the participation in things outside of the district, both, both within the district committees and um, you know, some have, have gotten extra education and training in something specific like cyber monitoring. Others have just, we have several officers on district review teams just going out, learning, sharing their experience with others and bringing back um, information. So I view that as um, leadership roles. So when you became chief, did you have a particular agenda that you wanted to pursue? Uh, were there changes at the district or national levels that you had in mind? Or was developing a vision more of a gradual process for you? And I guess I'm asking, Chris, what your motivation was uh, for wanting to become chief? Well, um, I, I certainly didn't have any specific agenda beyond wanting to be the best that we could be as an agency, as an individual, as a district, and thinking about different ways, you know, leaving alone what was working well and tweaking what needed, um, what could be more efficient or effective. Um, and so just by wanting to see what, um, what we could make uh, better. Um, I started networking and I um, became involved in some um, IT grants in the early stages with the pretrial chief from Central California at the time. And uh, we um, implemented the, um, the, the first kiosks and the electronic case file. And as a result, I got on a working group when we started looking at um, PACs and PACs ECM, and um, eventually it became the IT working group. And the funny thing is I'm the least technologically savvy, uh, but all the more reason why that drew me because I wanted to learn more about it. Um, so the more I just became involved, eventually I started meeting people, talking to more people, networking, and I became involved in the pretrial services working groups and um, had opportunities to help write some of the monographs and things like that. So really it was just being open to other ways of doing things that helped me bring things back to my district just as my other staff members were going out and bringing back suggestions. And uh, really just the agenda was always, you know, how can we do it better? So I think the lesson here maybe is that you don't have to come in with sort of 
a specific agenda in mind uh, and that that's not essential to good leadership, right? Um, but rather coming in with an open mind and wanting to be the best and knowing that there are improvements that can be made, but you need to figure out and work with your team to figure out what those need to be at the district level. And obviously, the more you participate in, in national groups, you'll you'll be able to articulate what kinds of changes might need to take place at the national level, but that it can be incremental and not, you know, not having an agenda is okay, you know, but as long, but you need to have an open mind, want to be the best and um, uh, look for opportunities. Exactly. And I also think it's important to always look for mentors, look for people who you can um, learn from and, and grow from that experience. So there's always mentors all around us at all stages of our life. And to continue to look um, to spend time and get to know people who um, have things to share with us. No, well, I think this idea of constantly growing throughout your career is uh, just really a, a valuable uh, insight. Um, and to, to, to that point, um, one of the trends we've seen, Chris, uh, that perhaps began in the 1990s and really seemed to gain steam in the early 2000s uh, and onward um, is the increasing numbers of women in federal pretrial and probation leadership positions. I think this is probably happening throughout law enforcement, but, you know, we're focused on probation and pretrial, and it's certainly been the case there. So you were appointed in 2004, and meaning you were a fairly young chief at the time. Uh, and I imagine you were often the only woman in the room uh, when you were in meetings with your male district and national counterparts, often who were uh, much more senior than you were. Um, could you describe what that was like? Well, I really encountered that even earlier in my career. Mm. Um, sure. When I was promoted to a supervisor, I was one of the few uh, women and certainly younger women in the group. Um, so I would be sent to some training and meetings and I would find myself um, you know, standing out. Um, and so certainly it was intimidating in the beginning because I was green and um, didn't know what I didn't know. Um, but I found the vast majority to be so welcoming. Those have been some of, most of my mentors have been all older men who've just, um, you know, been very open about bringing me in and teaching me. Uh, but um, when on occasion I would feel as if my opinion didn't seem to resonate or I, someone might be appearing dismissive, um, I didn't try to um, assume why it might be, whether it was my age, whether it was my gender. I just determined to prove them wrong, that I didn't have something of value uh, to share with them, that they could learn from someone much younger, less experienced. And, um, you know, I think that has always worked well for me. Yes. Well, um, you, you're hardly known as a shrinking violet in our system. No, I don't uh, think that's so you, <laughs> my you, you bring the Jersey <laughs> attitude and in a very, very good uh, and positive way. So, uh, and, and I think it's very helpful to hear you say, this isn't something that happens when you become chief. You know, right. This is something that happens from the very beginning. 
um, and you have to learn how to navigate that um, as somebody who might be the quote unquote minority in the room um, and and that you know you, you don't know what you don't know but you also know what you know uh, and not, it's important not to be bashful about articulating what you do know um, and then you know fighting for it having your voice heard having most your voice certainly heard. absolutely I'm talking with Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer Chris Dozier of New Jersey. She retired last month. We're going to take another break, and when we return, I'll ask Chris about her biggest accomplishments and for her thoughts regarding the future of pretrial justice and the lessons she's learned as a leader. Stay with us. The FJC has new videos available online from some of the best clinicians and researchers in the country that will help you deepen your knowledge about issues of substance use and mental health in the criminal justice context. Dr. Margaret Sheridan of the University of North Carolina and Dr. Carrie Russler of Harvard University discuss brain development and toxic stress in children and adolescents. Dr. Peter Friedman of the University of Massachusetts and Bay State Health offers an overview of the neurobiology of addiction and the neuropharmacology of opioid addiction. Dr. Eden Evans of Massachusetts General Hospital provides a lecture on the biology and treatment of addictive disorders and co-occurring psychiatric disorders. And Dr. John Kelly of the Massachusetts General Hospital Addiction Recovery Management Service talks about that service as an example of good outpatient treatment for substance use disorders. All of these videos and more are available on FJC.DCN's Probation and Pretrial Services Education page under Video Programs. We're back with Chris Dozier. Chris, you were a chief for 15 years, which in our system is a long time, and you were able to accomplish quite a lot. One area of management that pretrial and probation leaders and really leaders in lots of organizations struggle with regularly involves issues around human resources and in terms of the bigger picture, creating a caring and compassionate workplace. You were able to do a fair amount of that uh, work during your tenure. Um, so could you talk about some of the things you did? Certainly. Well, um, when I first became a manager... Um, I think many of us, when we're new to management, uh, think that the role is to have a certain way of doing things that we think works best and to get everybody on board with doing it that way. And when things don't quite go that way, um, trying to change that. Um, but over time, I came to realize that um, we really need to appreciate that people have a lot of different creative ways of doing things and we need to embrace that and try and bring the best out in everyone. So um, I've often said that, you know, some of the more flexible benefits, creative approach type things, it's more work for managers, but it's better for the staff. And I do find that to be true. So um when when we have a request to do something differently, the the new chief would have said, "Ah, oh, if we do that, then somebody else is going to want to do it, and uh, you know the agency is going to fall apart." But over time, I came to find that you know what we can do these things. If they become a problem, we'll deal with it, and you know most often they don't become a problem. 
So um, really being attentive to the needs of staff. And certainly as we've aged in our workforce, there are a lot more personal needs of staff. Um, I often talk to the staff about we as a profession are really good at taking care of others, our defendants, um, but not necessarily taking care of ourselves and each other. So um, I think it's really important that we remember we're a court family. We're with our work folks more than our own families um, for the most part. So even though we may not always agree with each other, we may not even always like each other, we need to have each other's backs because all of us at one point or another um, will most likely need some help. So what really changed the way I viewed my role was when we had some um, instances of tragedy, um, losing co-workers um, and we have had over 30 years we have had this a few times whether due to illness or something tragic and I saw at that time um, that staff really came together they were really sensitive to each other's needs they really reached out and helped each other and um, over time I have just come to appreciate that um, our most important resource is our human resource and we really need to invest in it. So taking time to talk to the staff about this very concept that if you need help, ask for help. If someone asks you for help, lend it. If it's a busy day, which most days are, and um, there's a little tension, uh, cut some slack because you never know what people have going on in their personal lives. And, and quite often people do have some challenges in their personal lives that they need some help at work. So that's kind of um, one of the lessons I think that's been most important is it's all about the relationships. And, and it's true uh, in terms of doing a good job, the relationships we have with the court, the relationships we have with our stakeholders. Building relationships is really key to um, people having confidence when you're coming to them with some ideas and some thoughts about how things can be done. And as a manager, particularly when I have to have a difficult conversation with an employee about performance, it's so important that they feel that you're coming um, at them from the right place, a place where you want them to do well um, and not where they're feeling demoralized. So... Um, it's, it's all about the relationship building. I think this is one of the most, um, difficult, uh, areas, um, that managers have to deal with and learn how to deal with, which is whether we call a performance evaluation or performance management or whatever it might be. And it could be on an individual basis. It could be on a agency wide basis, but, um, typically as you know, um, the traditional approach is to use performance evaluation or, or management at, almost as a cudgel. Um, and people feel like they're going to get hit over the head uh, if they've, you know, gone off track or whatever. But the reality is that um, if you want to, if you want somebody to improve and you want your organization to improve, the way to approach performance management is in a developmental way. Um, and, 
that when you need to have difficult conversations, in this case, we're talking about performance management, you know, it's about leading with the good, right? Because it's the rare case where somebody hasn't done something, especially at the professional level, something really good, right? And then you talk about those areas for improvement, right? Not weaknesses, areas for improvement. Um, and depending on how you have that conversation, the individual is typically receptive, especially if you're there also offering support, you know, like tangible support. Um, I think this is one of the areas that we experience. It's not probation and pretrial specific. It's an issue that we have in organizations. Um, and the whole tone of the organization will change if those conversations I have found, if those conversations sound supportive and not punitive. Uh, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're taking away from your experience as well. And your point about having worked in this particular agency for 30 years, 15 years of it as the chief, right? And having experienced some really significant human issues, right? Tragedy, loss, all those things that are really, you know, and you made the point of, you know, we're with these people sometimes more, more than we're with our own families. Um, so why should we relate to them any differently in terms of, as human beings, um, we love our families, we got to love our people. I, I, it sounds to me like you kind of grew into that um, and came to that over the course of your tenure, perhaps not even just as chief, but uh, over your tenure in the district. Yes, absolutely. Um, I really learned that we have a very diverse group, which is wonderful, but with very different skills and uh, different ways of doing things. And so um, the job has also gotten far more complex, I believe. And I used to tell new officers in training, it takes about a year before you're really going to be comfortable and, and feel it. And I, and I recently had an officer say, are you kidding me, Chris? Two years, please. So... Um, but I really feel like you you can be in training um, in certain aspects your entire career. Um, there's certainly been senior officers that I that I think um, appreciated um, the extra support of saying, "Hey, maybe if you look at this FJC program, um, it'll help you in this regard." So um, approaching the um, the the problem and the evolution from a um, you know, a, a support um, perspective. We changed our performance evaluations um, early on to say meets expectations or see goals, not meets or doesn't meet. So if you're not meeting expectations, then there should be some goals to address that. And it's a training issue. So everybody there uh, wants to do well. Uh, we, you know, we work really hard to recruit the best, and I believe they are the best. And um, people need different um, support and different types of um, guidance all throughout their career. I suspect this also goes to the issue of issues like 
uh, recruitment and succession planning, right? Um, you are, you, if, if you're the chief, especially if you have larger ambitions nationally in terms of uh, uh, things that you'd like to see changed, y- you're going to need to inculcate those values into your new officers that you're bringing on board, but also think about who's going to be moving into management positions and your deputy position, because when you're out of the district, the district still has to function, and they can't depend on you. Uh, obviously, you're only a phone call away, but I, I think th- that's not a philosophy um, that you want to change when you're out of the district. You want there to be con- there, you need there to be continuity, and the staff needs there to be continuity. So I suspect you've thought about this not just in terms of performance evaluation or management, but also just sort of the the whole gamut of challenges that exist for a leader. Absolutely. I think um, right from the point when we're recruiting people, we're looking for uh, people that we see have the ability to grow and develop. And that doesn't mean they have to be interested in a management track because they don't. But uh, but most do have, have some interest, or many do. And so, um, as I said, the way we were taught from Tom Henry, that leadership starts right from the beginning. And kind of honing your skills right from the beginning, that um, it's, it's really important to be thinking longer term about um, having um, the, the personnel with the skill sets to evolve into these higher executive level positions so that there is a good um, seamless secession plan. And um, our system is unique in some ways, um, and as a national system, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that we learn from each other and we make so many wonderful connections, um, but it's a blessing and a curse because we also see a lot of movement within the system. Um, we lose our talent to another district. Now we may gain some, but um, certainly I find in our metropolitan areas, it's challenging sometimes to keep people. And... Um, so we're losing that talent and that experience, and we're even seeing some um, competition in, in the recruitment and the hiring and the promotions um, among districts, which, um, you know, we, you need that stability within the district um, in order for there to be the relationship building, the, um, the uh, you know, the staff feeling uh, secure and not constantly having changes um, in the way we do things. So um, it, it was a, a source of pride that um, I promoted a, a, a strong deputy chief five years ago. Uh, give a shout out to John Muller, who um, was named chief after I left, but that um, he was very well ready to assume the helm. And the court um, was very confident in his abilities and in the agency in general, in the staff, in the practices. And so, therefore, it was a very seamless transition. It could be a very um, hectic and, and disempowering um, situation if there's a lot of um, unknown um, that has happened in some districts. Um, so I think it is really important that we think about um, the future, both short and long term, for our agency as as uh, part of our, our role as the executive. So I want to shift gears uh, and talk about some of the work that you've done nationally. 
And I'd like you to touch on both your work with the National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies, or NAPSA, and the work you did with the state of New Jersey to help them develop and implement bail reform and state pretrial services. Your service on both of those aspects is kind of interrelated. Um, So uh, talk about that, if you could. Yes. um, I... Um, went to my first NAPSA conference in 2005 in Cleveland, and um, it was so energizing, inspiring. Uh, it really motivated me to to think bigger picture and to want to go home and and do better. And um, so I met Greg Johnson, who was the chief in Cleveland at the time, and in fact, he became one of those people that helped mentor me. And he was the federal representative on the NAPSA board at the time. So Greg worked with me in 2010. We, we had a conference, a pretrial conference in New Jersey in Atlantic City that was attended by 400 pretrial professionals from across the federal system. And we realized there's a real yearning for this type of, of training, more of it. Um, so when Greg retired, he asked me to take his place on the federal uh, the, on the NAPSA board as the federal representative, and I did that. And it's just been an absolutely wonderful experience for me personally to learn and grow from so many wonderful people, state, local, federal. Um, I, I took on the role simultaneously. The uh, pretrial representative from the administrative office retired, and I took on the role of developing the federal track at NAPSA, for the curriculum, and uh, it became a really collaborative thing with the Federal Judicial Center, with the um, Administrative Office, PPSO, and um, it, it allowed us this um, freedom to reach out to a lot of really key stakeholders in our system and talk to them about the issues, invite them to be on panels, and by asking them to speak, we were also helping educate them about our concerns. And so um, it wasn't until I got on the NAPSA board that I realized my own state didn't have any pretrial services. We really sometimes in the federal system are are only um, focused on what we're doing. But I started thinking about what's happening in my own state. And it really was a grassroots effort began um, and had been going on for quite a while, but I got in touch with several former federal prosecutors who were now in key positions in the state, judges, prosecutors, and eventually our governor (laughs) and our chief justice of our New Jersey Supreme Court. They were all, they understood what the federal bail laws were and the flexibility that that provided them. And that when they got to the state that had a cash bail system, that it was wrong and it did not work well. So just to remind the audience, the governor of New Jersey at the time had been the United States attorney for the District of New Jersey. So you had worked with, obviously you work with that office every day. Uh, so you knew each other. Yes. So Chris Christie was the U.S. attorney. And when he became governor, he wanted preventive detention to address some of the violent crime that had been occurring. Um, but, uh, there were really many key stakeholders from his office, from, 
um, the administrative office of the courts, the defense bar. There were a, a lot of just key people who said, if we're going to do preventive detention, we need pretrial services to make this work well. And um, Marie Van Nostrand was commissioned by the Drug Policy Alliance at the time to do a study of jail overcrowding in New Jersey. That study was published at the perfect moment that we had um, planned a symposium at Rutgers Law School about this. And when Chief Justice Rabner saw the study, he put together a commission to, um, to plan basically bail reform and some other reforms. So I was really, really fortunate to be able to, um, to work in that reform. Um, I testified before the assembly. I put uh, the key people in New Jersey in touch with really a lot of the key uh, people in pretrial throughout the country, most of them on the bail, on the, on the NAPSA board, um, because they had good running programs. And... Um, you know, I was fortunate to be a part of that. It was on the ballot, uh, and the uh, voters in the state of New Jersey voted in a constitutional amendment, and pretrial services has been in place since 2017. It's an amazing accomplishment, really. Uh, and the, the outcomes so far in New Jersey have been very positive, um, for, is my understanding. Yes, uh, many, many districts across the country are looking to New Jersey as one of the uh, premier models for, for bail reform. It doesn't typically happen at that level. It's typically smaller um, evolution, but um, it's it's just been a tremendous thing. And the work continues today. Um, I'm still the, the representative on the NAPSA board, and I'd like to engage more of our uh, folks in the federal system to, to work with us and eventually see someone else in that uh, position. But um, it's it's really been such a wonderful opportunity for me. So before we go, Chris, I want to ask you, as you ride off into the sunset, uh, what you're hopeful about in terms of the future of pretrial justice, especially in the federal system, and what some con- what are some concerns you have, um, and then, you know, any final thoughts about leadership? Well, I feel very encouraged by the direction of our system. I think that uh, there have been a number of things that have um, occurred in recent years that are really moving that ship, turning the ship. Um, It takes a lot of time to turn, but um, good things are happening. Certainly the programming that I've worked with at the FJC has just been so amazing and creative Uh, the Harvard program being one of them, but um, they helped us implement our drug court, just so so many wonderful things. Um, And the administrative office, they're they're doing great work as well. I know, shout out to Bill Hicks and uh, John Fitzgerald, who's now at the helm and really has a vision for engaging more and more key stakeholders. So I feel very encouraged by that. I think that Um, our community is starting to have a better appreciation for uh, some of the ways in which we need to um, help do this better. So um, I think it's, um, there are great things happening. It's also a challenging, really challenging time. I know in my own district, the workload had really exploded. Um, We had hired 10 new officers just in the last year, and they're still hiring when I left. There was a lot of retirements, so a lot of really new people, great energy, but um, 
we lost a lot of that, you know, experience and, and expertise. So um, sometimes you just need to slow the roll and just work on doing the fundamentals well before you can be more creative. Um, but I'm very proud of our system. I'm so proud to have been a part of it. And um, I just, all I could say is that I encourage people to just be passionate about what they do. Chris Dozier, I want to congratulate you on a remarkable career. I've known you for a long time, and it's been just a pleasure to be able to watch you work and to work with you, too. On behalf of myself and my colleagues at the FJC, I want to wish you all good things as you start this next chapter of your life. Thank you so much. It has been my pleasure. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Welcome. Off Paper is produced by Jennifer Richter. The program is directed by Chris Murray. Our program coordinators are Anna Glochkova and Olivia Panic. Remember, you can subscribe to Off Paper wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.